Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I'm joined by Fritz Steger in Germany. Fritz, welcome to the show. Hey, hi, Bart. Nice uh, um, being on the show. Yeah, I should have asked, where exactly are you in Germany? I'm located uh, south of Germany, um, just 10 minutes away from Switzerland and France. Oh, cool. So it's a triangle between these three countries. Wow. Sounds like a nice place to live. You get a little bit of, uh, little bit of everything there. Yeah, it's very nice. It's called the Black Forest area. We have a lot of nice countryside, good food, influenced by the French. And uh, yeah, it's a good, good spot. Cool. A lot of fun. I'm really happy to have you on the show here today. Uh, you were recommended by Norbert Samon, who's become a really good friend of the show, um, from Meinl, who um, is gracious enough to send me um, you know, tips on people who he thinks would be really good guests on the show. And you were very highly recommended. Um, so I should mention, too, you own the Drum House, Freiburg, um, which is your shop, correct? Yeah, correct. Cool. Well, we can talk about that more later. But um, so today's topic, and we talked on the phone maybe a few weeks ago and kind of got a little bit of a game plan together, but it, it sort of evolved. Like, I don't think we really had too much of a plan. I kind of went into it thinking you're an expert on, as Norbert told me, like, you know, European drum manufacturing, which is obviously correct, but you sort of uh, brought it to my attention that a lot of the things that as an American, I think, um, you know, like we talked about, like you were mentioning, the drum set was invented in New Orleans in the 20s. I mean, Europe in general, Germany, you guys, it's so much older. It goes back so much further. So there's a lot of misconceptions about uh, the birth of the drum set and these various little pieces of gear. So today we're going to kind of tackle some of these, uh, I don't want to call them myths, but maybe what is an American we think is true and maybe it's not true because it's it's different in Europe. So on that note, why don't you drop some knowledge on us? <laughs> yeah, well, um, as far as I know, the, um, the drum or the drums were uh, brought in uh, by the Genesis music, um, uh, military music, end of the 16th um, century, hmm. and um, like Turkish military, and uh, they made a contract with the Austrians, and that was a time in uh, 1699 when um, they had Genesis music bands playing in Vienna, and from that point, it was adopted to um, European classical music, Mozart and all this stuff. So it came into the classical music and all, also later on to the brass bands. And so they had a bass drum and they had um, like what we call snare drum now, which is like a, they called it a tambour. And also the Turkish obviously knew the secret how to make symbols, as we know from the Sildian company, who have the great uh, secret from 1623, I think. And yeah. so they had the three parts, bass drum, snare drum, and cymbals. And you can imagine that when a marching band played, practiced, and maybe it was wintertime and it was very difficult to get somewhere, uh, maybe somebody was ill, and so they had one player and three instruments. So naturally, one started to play the snare drum and kicked the bass drum and maybe hung up a cymbal somewhere on a, on a stand and played it as well. Just I think this happened completely normal in different areas all over Europe and the world. And so the first bass drum paddle patent uh, is from 1896, I think. So it's much earlier than the, the drum set in New Orleans, which speaks that before that, somebody tried to play the bass drum with a foot pedal and playing the snare at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because uh, there's... I've talked about it before, but there's the famous picture of a guy sitting with a snare, the double drumming kind of picture where it's a guy with um, with a snare drum on his chair and then he's got the bass drum and you kind of think of like it inventing there. But I always, there's just like um, things naturally happen, like you're saying, like it's without a doubt, 
someone would just sit there and think to themselves like, oh, if I do this, it, I can do all these things at one time. So it's not like that surprising to me that someone wouldn't have thought of this before, um, which is interesting. So, wow, that's really neat. Yeah. And, and I mean, I mean, some maybe in this band was a Smith who just said, okay, I will build you a little device. And this happened somewhere in Italy. And at the same time, the same thing happened in Germany. I mean, this was at, at that time, they had the instruments and they wanted to play it. And I mean, yeah, they did it. And um, I have pictures of marching or brass bands. Like when I talk about marching bands, it's not only the military bands, they're also, also the brass bands, the civil brass bands. And I have pictures from like 1875 where you see a drummer playing the big bass drum and the snare drum. And of course, the snare drum is flipped to the right side because when you were marching the the snare was flipping to the right side so for mm -hmm. that they put it on a stand and flipped it over as the mm -hmm. same position as they used to walk yeah gosh that's fascinating i mean there's no right or wrong to this either where like no we were first we were first i think and there was so many um immigrants coming from going coming and going you know what i mean coming from america going to europe and um, and coming to America from Europe. So things obviously had to travel, which is the the story of the New Orleans kind of drum set is that people, it would be uh, people coming from Africa, obviously usually against their will, which is terrible, but, um, and then spreading the drums and then it would evolve from there and jazz was invented and they do all that. So it's no matter what, it's always kind of a melting pot of um, cultures. And it sounds like, like you said, in Europe, people are in Italy, they're kind of combining um uh their backgrounds and, and what they do now i want to ask you too so you talked a little bit about the bass drum pedal let's get into that a little bit because that's sort of like there is such a wide big history on bass drum pedals but i think a lot of people think that the first modern invented you know patented bass drum pedal was 1909 with ludwig which kind of kicked off the company right so but you're kind of saying that they were doing that earlier in Europe, correct? Yeah, I mean, there is American patent from 1897, I think, and I saw pictures of older pedals, basically very, very, very basic. I mean, mm -hmm. like made out of wood and um, some out of metal, but very basic. But I don't think that we can really tie it down. This was invented here and there. It no. just happened. Um, and I mean, Ludwig and uh, Friedrich Gretsch, they were Germans and they brought the ideas to America and then developed the stuff over there. And I mean, it's for sure that between 1910 and 1945, there was much more happening in America because we had two world wars here over yeah. in Europe. And that had to do, I mean, originally the snare drum was built out of out of brass. I mean, uh, it's very interesting that in uh, Germany there is no title of a drum builder. We don't have drum builder as a profession. Hmm. But when you are a brass instrument builder, that's in a real profession you can be trained in and you can do a master degree. And like, Till ten years before to, uh, ago, uh, when you were a brass instrument builder, you also automatically had the degree of a drum builder. This came of the time when all snare drums and drums were made out of brass. But uh, always wars have to do that the military needs all the metal. And then the people started to build things out of wood. Same happened in America with the rolling bombers mm -hmm. in 1940s, uh, built by Slingerland and Ludwig, where all the lugs and stands and everything was made out of wood. And so they started to build drums out of wood as well. In America, we had the government ruling, like you're saying, where you can't use you know X amount of more materials, 10% metal per drum. 
So obviously what you're saying is that you have to, uh, Germany had that same thing, correct? So are there, is it, it, did it go as far on German drums where like there were lugs that were wood? You know what I mean? I only really think of that with American drums, but did it get that serious over there as well? Um, I don't think that at that time Germans were able to build drums at all. I mean, uh, we we were yeah. affected by the war very heavily. I mean, look at, at what happened at the American drum manufacturing between 1910 and 1945. There was so much happening and big drums, Slingerland, engraved black beauty drums yeah. and leady beautiful snare drums wonderful drum sets here we had 1914 the first world war and i mean nobody could build drums nobody could afford drums after the first world war people were very poor so they just probably repaired what they had and then they're building up a new industry and then when the nazis came in 1933, jazz music and all the popular music coming from America was forbidden because the mm -hmm. Nazis didn't want to have this music. So again, they had all, only brass bands and military bands, so they needed a snare drum. At a time when um, over overseas, a lot of what was going on in Chicago and jazz and all these things. And then all started after the Second World War in Germany again, when American troops were here in in Germany playing American musics. And so then that's the time when everything started with German bands playing jazz and then, of course, rock and roll, beat music, rock. And this is when we started to import instruments from America. I mean... Everyone wanted to have a Ludwig drum or a Gretsch drum here in Europe. And so German companies started to um, copy and invent the same things. And this is when everything started here. But mm -hmm. we had a, had two d different difficult times where nothing happened. First World of War, course. Second World War. Yeah, and a few thoughts on that. I mean, I'm, just, I'm, I'm sure like... Um, like here, it makes me think of like in America and like the time of like prohibition when people couldn't drink, it didn't mean people weren't drinking. It just meant they got really good at sneaking and having these like little speakeasies with clubs. It makes me think that if, you know, if in Nazi Germany, they said that you can't have jazz, I'm sure people still love jazz and probably hit it and, uh, and were very, which would be very, very risky, obviously. But, you know, it's like, I think. I, that, that's just an interesting thought of like maybe people were sneaking and kind of practicing and like an underground kind of thing. I don't know if that, you know, there's any truth behind that at all. Mm, I doubt that very much. I mean, probably <laughs> people be... listen to jazz music on the radio. Yeah. I mean, there are stories and I know that my grandfather, you used to have an illegal radio using it underneath the pillow and mm. uh, listening to, to BBC. Wow. But um, I mean, there was I mean, jazz music has to do with noise, and I mean, there was no place you could hide and play secretly jazz because everyone, every neighbor would have definitely reported you, and you would be thrown to jail. So I yeah. doubt that there was any live music or, or illegal clubs were going. This was much too restricted and. Yeah. I mean, everybody w could be your enemy. So everything you did illegally had to be absolutely in secret and absolutely quiet. God. And so it had to be so quiet that even your kids shouldn't hear when you listen to to um, BBC London because they could tell that in the school to a classmate and the classmate would report it to the teacher and then the Gestapo would be in front of your door and throw you to jail because you, you were not allowed to, to um, listen to, to yeah. um, the BBC. Man, what a, as I, as you're saying that, I'm like, man, what I asked was kind of a dumb question. Cause of course you're not going to secretly be playing jazz. It's not worth it. <laughs> that. Yeah. But your other um, point about how everyone wanted Ludwig's and Gretsch drums. And, and I, I mentioned to you before about it's, it's kind of a hard topic and I've been, I've been working on an episode about it, but about 
not really in, you know, World War II, but like just in in general, broader Europe, Eastern Europe, um, about the smuggling of American drums into Soviet countries, which is something I'm really interested in and is kind of, a, there's some articles about it, which I'm, um, I've read and they're fascinating, but um, about getting these drums in and or Soviet countries um, making, you know, copies, almost like you think of like the Japanese stencil drums, but it, they would be um, kind of copies in that Eastern block. Um, now, any, any info on that, like the kind of smuggling of drums? Yeah. I mean, I know that, that, uh, was sm smuggling of drums, but, um, um, there, I mean, Eastern Germany, for example, they had musicians who came over to, to Western Germany. I mean, if they were, um, if they were considered that they were so so socialistic um uh located that they go back to eastern germany then they could go and play uh, there was always interest in exchange from from west to to east and mm -hmm. vice versa and um so they they had a the chance to bring instruments and maybe camouflage them make them look old but um also they imported drums i know from uh Paisti from the cymbal manufacturer who also um, was distributor for Heyman drums. He brought a lot of Heyman drums into the East, Eastern European countries uh, illegally because the, the professional bands, they demanded for better instruments and uh, basic instruments like the, the Eastern German made Tecton and Trova drums. They were very basic. They were didn't sound very good so the professional musicians really wanted to have good drums and so because Paisti was originally from Estonia which was then part of the um part of Russia uh, so they made a contract with uh, Thomas Paiste bringing in uh, drums to to Eastern Europe hmm. that's interesting I know I've um like uh way 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 more recent um the guys who did the GMS drums episode um also got a distribution kind of deal through Peisty and had a lot of help from them um in the 80s late 80s early 90s um so so it's kind of cool that Peisty carried that on a little bit um so and I remember on the phone you mentioned something to me about some like blueprints with Peisty and being stolen and stuff like that what what was that story uh, basically, when when the wall between Eastern and Western Germany came down end of the the eighties, um, they tried to rebuild factories and yeah get get everything things settled over there. And um, they considered that the old Sonor factory, which was after the Second World War, run by the by the uh, Eastern German state was not worth to rebuild it because, I mean, it was really working on a very old machinery. And so they basically sold it. And um, I knew a, a man who basically bought all machines, all inventory, everything. And he came with a big truck and loaded drum heads and old machinery. And so, and there was also a big, sort of cupboard metal cupboard and it was full of folders and the, the 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 last manager of the eastern german factory he said no 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 this is uh, belongs to the german uh, or the or eastern german government which didn't exist at that stage anymore and he said no 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 i bought everything and so i own also the folders mm -hmm. so he took all the folders and so these folders had Sonor on him, they had Lefima on him, another manufacturer, they had Paisti. And um, so he was looking into these folders and uh, they had blueprints of complete machineries, one to one, the hammers, how um, Paisti used to hammer the cymbals. They had blueprints of um, the lugs, sonar lugs, and everything. And so this man. Try to make some money out of these folders and 
um, sold them to a couple of factories. I know that Paiste bought the folder. I don't know for how much money. And it was quite scary because uh, there was a lot of private information in this folder. And so the, the Stasi, which was the secret service of, of Eastern Germany, they really made a profile on Thomas Paiste and found out everything about his private life, what kind of drinking habits with his friends and everything. So that was quite scary that they just wanted to know, find out all these things, um, maybe to blackmail him or whatever. But, I mean, obviously nothing happened. But um, on many of these blueprints, there was always a stamp saying, we can't do that because we don't have the material. So they didn't have the exact access for the material like uh, bronze, uh, bronze eight percent, for example, what what I used to make the symbols of, or B twenty uh, bronze like silium uh, material. They couldn't couldn't get in Eastern Germany, so they couldn't make the symbols. And uh, I know that I think Sono bought a folder and maybe Lefima as well, but. Unfortunately, a lot of these folders were scrapped by the, the son of the guy who made the deal, and so they're gone forever. Jeez. Wow. So interesting. I mean, it's very, um, it's almost like a movie, you know, to think of these like folders. of It kind of makes the drum world seem more, I mean, but it is very important stuff. Um, this just information about about how you create this and you know this and that and lugs and all that so that's fascinating it it's similar in america to like let's say like the fbi or like the cia one of these organizations where like you don't want them looking into your personal <laughs> information yeah. yeah a little um, bit scary yeah when you when you look into the drum building drum manufacturing of eastern germany you had always and I think this is with many things like cars or planes. There was always a, a, a phase where they copied strongly Western models. And then mm -hmm. there was another area where they um, made an own thing. And then there was a copying phase again. So the first uh, Trover drum sets built after the war in the old Sono factory um, were really an own very interesting looking sort of art deco design, which was quite interesting. But probably it was not very popular. And then in the 60s, they copied 100% the teardrop lugs of Sono. And then in the beginning of the 80s, they had a new, completely new own design. And then they started to copy Sonoma completely again. And um, yeah, that's quite interesting. But the quality was always very, very poor. And um, I don't think that they could sell many drum sets into, into Western Europe, but um, obviously sold a lot of drums into all Eastern state. And I was I was writing a book about um German drums some years ago and um I I was bumming into a into a famous drummer of Santana from Cuba mm -hmm. and um he looked at my book and and then he said oh this is a tecton drum and I said where do you know these tecton drums from? They're from Eastern Germany. And I said, oh, we had them in Cuba when I played as a kid. And this is, I mean, Cuba, Cuba was, um, was was a communist, and that's the reason they get these Eastern German drums into Cuba. Mm. Wow. That's fascinating. I got to ask, was it Walfredo? Uh, yeah, yeah. Reyes? yeah. Uh, he, he's, it's funny because he um, is an awesome guy. He lives a couple minutes away. From me, I mean, he he lives here where I live. Uh, he actually lives across the river in in Kentucky, which is ten minutes away. But um, we've kind of become uh, we have become friends over the uh, yeah the last and, year. And I mean, I couldn't believe it. I bumped to him at Frankfurt Music Fair, and I, I showed him the book. And then I've, I've never thought that he could spot an Eastern German made drum set. We in I mean, this was the 
the worst case if your parents would buy you an Eastern German drum. You could buy it from from a like like a mail order somehow, but not in the music store. Oh man! And then he he said, "Oh, I started on Tacton." That's so funny. I mean, you being here in America. I mean, the whole and I think around the world, obviously. They, um, I know in Germany that that there was the huge fear of communism, and here there was this massive fear of these communist countries and it's going to take over everything, which, you know, right or wrong, whatever. But you, you kind of forget about how far communism spread and how they would like supply these communist, you know, brands or whatever in those countries to places like Cuba and stuff. You, you, you don't really think about that sometimes and how these, inst- it doesn't, drums doesn't come to your mind first. You know what I mean? Like yeah. of, of things being spread around. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, I even saw saw uh, Eastern European drums in in Vietnam. I mean, yeah, exactly. They, I mean, but we n- never thought about them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, no. Wow. Okay. Um. Now I gotta ask because I have worked. I keep. I gotta quit saying it, but I've I've been working on an episode about this topic about tricks and drums, and I have really had a hard time finding. The, the people who I've been suggested speak very little English and they're absolute experts on Trixon, but they're the, the English is not, they say, I can't come on your show. I can't, you know, I can type it, but I can't speak it well enough. But where does Trixon fit into this? Um, you know, maybe we kind of pivot now just while we're talking about German stuff and German drums, where does Trixon fit in that? Cause I mean, these are just some out there drums, obviously. Yeah, I mean, uh, Karl-Heinz Weimar, he was from Hamburg. I mean, so he's he's Western German. And uh, he started basically after the war with the drum, drum manufacturing. And um, this was quite a very, very successful company. I mean, sonar drums were existed before the First World War. Uh, they were found in 1875. So... Um, the factory was in eastern germany so when the second world world war um, ended uh, consul otto link he was um, escaping uh, the eastern german government and it was quite interesting story because um, the gestapo came to his house to uh, ar- arrest him and he could jump out of a window in the garden where his son uh, picked him up with a stolen ambulance and <laughs> drove him into Western Germany. Oh, my God. And so he came into yeah different stations. He ended up in Wittgenstein, and uh, the um, Duke of Wittgenstein helped him to find a new factory. So Sonor started in Germany, and I mean they had all the know-how from before the war, and that was the number one in the Sonor factory in Eastern Germany that built the Trova and Tecton drums, and then the second strong brand was Trixen, found by Karlheinz Weimar in Hamburg. They had also other companies. There was uh, in Kassel. There was. Um, um, Tromsa drums, and I had in Bavaria um, dairy or Rimmel drums. These were the main manufacturers after the Second World War. And Trixen had quite good contacts to jazz drummers. They had a, um, yeah, I mean, they're pictured with him and Gene Krupa and, um, yeah, a lot of American drummers. And so he had lot of in, uh, ideas and uh, crazy ideas like doing the Telstar and the, um, the Speedfire drum kit yeah. and um, yeah, pretty cool stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah, and so people know that I'm sure people have seen it, but maybe they don't know what brand they were. Just if someone's listening who's kind of a newer drummer, these are the drums that they, you know, one side is like let's say the 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 side the batter side that you're kicking is an 18 inch and it goes down to like a 14 or 16 and yeah there was the tell star like they had they had a bass drum i mean they had a normal um rack tom but they had a bass drum where the 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 kick side was 20 and and um the bottom side was 16 and the same drum was used as a as a floor tom with a 16 batter head and a 20 resonant head i didn't know it was the same drum yeah and 
they had this very weird crocodile finishes in lilac and crazy colors pretty cool but uh, buddy rich played um, tricks and drums at that time called vox drums in america and he had an endorsement from 66 to 67 so they had a quite famous endorsee yeah in buddy rich and clyde uh stubblefield from um and and i i guess uh all the drummers, because um, James Brown had many drummers, but I think they used the Vox. Um, Drum, yeah, 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 which is which is so neat. So this, I think, is not true, but I think I read in an article for Drum Magazine or one of them um, where when um, when Carl Heinz Weimer died, I heard he wanted to be buried with his whole inventory of drums or he destroyed all of his drums when he died, like right before he died or something like that. But someone told me that that's not true. uh, Not really. I mean, I mean, what happened? uh, I mean, why is Trix not around? I mean, they were a big player at that time and very popular. What happened is that at the end of the 60s, it was very, very attractive to invest in in Ireland for some political tax reasons. And so he made a fusion with um, um, an Irish piano factory called Ripon. And they made a fusion and he brought all the production from Germany into Ireland. And then basically Ripon went bankrupt and he lost everything. And Hmm. so probably this yeah killed him in the end yeah jeez that's there's so many um i guess it's in a lot of businesses but there's so many things that you hear about with businesses that that happen time after time with drum brands like like that where there was maybe a bad investment and it just went under or they tried to partner or they tried to save money with this or they get a big endorser for a year like buddy rich and it then they go away but like there's a lot of parallels with a lot of these companies um both american german any any country there's brothers splitting up that happens all the time i mean it's it's probably very difficult i mean there are not so many drummers around i mean um like in the brass band you need like 20 or 30 saxophones or trumpets and whatever but you only have one drummer and if you're a guitar player, you can have 30 guitars on your wall. But, I mean, I know a couple of, of marriages who broke because the drummer had, like, five drum sets in the in the, in the kitchen. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not an easy instrument to collect. And, and, yeah, you know what I mean? Oh, I know what you mean. And it's funny you say that because uh, um, – I recently had, and people listening to the show are probably thinking the same thing I'm. Ha- I'm thinking where uh, Mike Corrado, who's a very you know yeah. esteemed collector here, he has 650 snare drums in his house, um, all over, and he's married. And so I think that's everyone's thought was like, what about Mike Corrado? He's he's breaking the mold. But you're right, you're right. I have a I have a drum set in my front hall, and we're moving in a couple of days. And my wife said, okay, so now we're going to put the drum set away and. No more drums in the front hall. I'm like, <laughs> it was yeah. great while it lasted. Yeah. Um, I mean, difficult was definitely the, um, the arrival of the Japanese drum companies. I mean, they they were really good in listening to drummers. I mean, I was around at that time, and I remember how quick all that that happened. I mean, the industry here in Germany was basically sonar but i mean everybody was keen on ludwig rogers slingerland drums because all our heroes played them and um then all of a sudden in in, within five years this happened that i mean all these companies were gone Mm. and and everybody was playing pearl tama yamaha and that happened very very quick and um they they listen very good to the demand what drummers really wanted. I mean, Tama got Billy Cobham, and he yeah. said, you know, my problem is always when I have big drum sets that I need an extra 
Tom arm here and an extra mount there. And then they invented this multi, multi clamp system and they had invented the drum racks and, and yeah. And this happened so quick. And I mean, and infected, affected every drum company in the world. I mean, Premier yeah. was bankrupt at that time and then sold to Yamaha. Uh, Ludwig was sold to Con. Uh, Slingerland was gone. Rogers was gone. Um, Sonor, yeah, they were was sold to KHS eventually. So yeah, that was a big, big cut. End of the the eighties. Yeah, and I remember talking to Norbert about um, the Minel history, and he kind of uh, I didn't realize the the connection there between. Uh, Minel and Star Drums and about how they became the distributor of Hoshino in Germany. So it's kind of, you know, I guess you can't have the 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 story of um, Japanese drums coming into Germany without discussing, you know, Minel's a part of that, which is which is interesting because that was a big part of their business was bringing in the Japanese stuff. And I know um, I've said it a bunch on this show, but like about how people at Slingerland were kind of showing people, the Japanese, you know, businessmen or drum builders in and showing them some of the factories for Slingerland. And then they went back and um, took the uh, ideas and then made these drums. So I don't think a lot of people realized how, uh, I don't want to say devastating, but I want to say like just how massive the impact of, of these drums coming into um, all over the world was to the, the uh the drum kind of you know just the the way things were before it's really fascinating yeah i mean minel he started to talk to the japanese and um he he had a small business in building cases for brass instruments and um there was after the war big demand for cymbals and so like uh, schools ask him, do you have symbols? And then he started to make them himself. I mean, he just got some some brass and hammered them himself. And then he was the first man, I think, who, who um, invented a machine to to um, to press the symbols. And um, and then he was speaking at a Frankfurt Music Fair to Japanese producers, to Hoshino, who had star drums and. Um, nobody really wanted to make business with these people at that time. And he was the first one. And I know from colleagues of him who laughed about him and said, what do you want to do with these Japanese drums? And then he could sell them quite quickly because they were much cheaper than the German drums. And at that time, Star was copying two lines. On the one hand, they had Slingerland Rogers copies. And on the other hand, they had also sonar lugs and sonar hoops. Hmm. And so in oh. Europe, they had more the sonar type. In America, they had more the Slingerland type. But then they quite soon started to make own uh, designs and going away from copying. And um, at one stage, that was must have been around 1968 or 69, Meinl had both drums, Pearl and Tama drums or Star drums at that time. And um, the, the Japanese didn't like that. So he had to decide whether he want to go for Pearl or for Star. And he, he stayed with Star. And then um, Pearl went to another distributor. And then Billy Cobham came along and Tama would... Uh, most famous drum brand here in Europe in the seventies, end of the seventies. Yeah, they brought out Imperial Star, the Superstar, and got a lot of big endorses. And the same time, Ludwig was setting free so many top endorses, and Pearl and Tama just got them all. And then, yeah, <laughs> the drum world changed. Yeah, and uh, also at that time, for example. When you wanted to buy a drum set, you had to buy, I mean, here in Europe, I don't know how it was in the States, but when I would, was a kid, I had a drum kit and I had cymbal stands, I had everything, and 
or oh, I want to have a new shell set, but that was not possible. When I wanted to buy a new Ludwig drum kit, I only could purchase it with uh, stands, snare drum, and everything. Hmm. And the Japanese understood that a lot of people just want to have shells and that they want to play around. So they pr made it simple. They had only two colors at that time, but had a range from 6 to 18 of single drums, which every distributor stocked in a big amount and so it was very easy to get access to these drums and build your own drum kits at that time you had double bass drum kits with a lot of toms and yeah that was completely different i did not know that i mean so i mean i was born in 90 so this is obviously way before you know my time but like when i came up with drumming um it was like, obviously in that time, I mean, you know, in 2000, you know, when I'm getting buying drums and stuff as a young kid, but like you can get sets with cymbals and everything. But for the most part, you go and you buy drums and you get just the drums and you, you know, you think, well, crap, now I need to save more money and buy more stands. But so you're saying that in that earlier point in time, you want Ludwig, you get a bass drum pedal, you get stands, you get everything. I, I never really knew that. Yeah, you you had to buy the whole set. And I mean, I grew up in a, in a city with a population of around 200,000 people. And we had three music, three music stores. And in one music store, you had a blue Pearl drum set. And in the other one, you had a green Ludwig. And in the third, you had a, a gray Slingerland. And that's it. And you had to choose between these three drums. Mm -hmm. And so... I went for a Orange uh, Rogers Headliner 4. I mean, cool. I rather wanted to have like four toms, but this had one rag tom, but that's that's all I could get in the city. <laughs> so I had to learn to play with with a without a second a second rag tom and what what was good for me. Yeah. God, you 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 take so many things for granted now of like uh, of like, oh, well, just get on, um, you know, just order another Tom or get any color drum set ever made that you want. Even now you can buy a vintage anything on reverb or whatever. But um, it's just interesting to think about that. Like, those are your three options <laughs> in. Yeah, uh, that was, yeah. I mean, getting getting a second Tom. I mean, at that time, it was here in, in Germany quite normal that you started with a snare drum and played snare drum for a couple of years especially when you were trained in a brass band and they gave you a snare drum and said okay learn the technique you've got stick control and then so after two years the teacher would say okay get him a bass drum then you went to a shop and you could buy a single bass drum and you could afford it and then you played a bass drum and then a year later you got a hired machine and mm. At that time, a lot of drum sets had only bass drum and one rag tom, no floor tom. And then you see when you buy vintage drums that the floor tom is a couple of years later and has has a different design. Yeah. So today you rather buy a, a complete drum set. It's much cheaper than buying it in, in singles. Oh, sure. Now, um, just jumping off here a little bit also, I just wanted to ask, because we, we kind of started talking about, you know, like, the misconceptions of who invented what and when this happened. I want to ask you, what is your, I know it's, I feel like it can't be proven one way or the other, but what is your theory on the invention of the hi-hat? Who do you think invented the hi-hat? Because a lot of it comes people, a lot of what I've heard is it's this American guy, this American guy, but uh, you know, I'm sure again, we're talking about Europe. Where, where do you see it? I mean, I first, I mean, I know, or I have catalogs from around 1900 uh, where you can see bass drum paddles where they play the cymbal at the same time. Mm -hmm. So they have a bass drum and then they have the cymbal sitting next to it. And yep. you could either play both bass drum and cymbal or just the bass drum. Um, also, I know that that was the invention of the low boy, mm -hmm. which was probably the same like the bass drum paddle. I mean, I don't think that it's, I mean, when you when you push two cymbals together with your hands, somebody might have the idea to just put it on a 
on a foot pedal. I mean, exactly. probably this is the same happening in different parts of the world around the same time. And the easiest idea is to say, okay, why you have this hired pedal on the floor? Just make it on a on a stand and then you can play it at the same time. This, I think this happened around 1920 then in real. Yeah. People say it's Papa Joe Jones, who had a friend who's a plumber. Um, I had an episode about it with Rob Cook, who uh, there's another gentleman whose name is completely escaping me right now, um, who uh, they think he invented it. I mean, it's just one of those topics that it's very, um, I think that it probably has happened in in multiple places at different times. It's sort of like like we've just been saying it, it, it evolved naturally. Um, you know, like it just sort of, obviously if the low boy is down there and you hear the, uh, the, um, uh, skip Rutherford is the guy's name who I was just saying who Rob cook thinks, yeah. uh, he says invented it, but there's the story of someone dropping their stick and they hit it and they go, Oh man, I can play this with, with, with a stick and not just my foot. But, um, okay. I just didn't know if you were going to be like, well, actually in, Germany, we did it in 1830. We had a hi hat and <laughs> or something like that. No, I mean, I mean, I I could have go through my archives and and look into some photos, but I don't, I can't remember. Normally, sure. they had the um, what what they had as a standard was that they had on the bass drum, um, the cymbal mounted on top of the bass drum. And you could play with one hand the cymbal, and with the other hand you played the snare drum. This is what you see on pictures around 1850 or something. Hmm. Yeah, that's neat. And then it just evolves from there. You you kind of look at it and you go, why didn't they just do that? You know, why didn't you just end up with? Why didn't you think ahead? But like you can't, you can't jump forward and see things uh, the way they're going to be. But I feel like, I mean, this is pretty obvious, but I feel like the drum set, we've been pretty consistent with the drum set as is for, for quite a while now. You know what I mean? Like it really changed in those early days, but it seems like we've been pretty, uh, do, do you see any major changes happening in the next, you know, <laughs> like I just, I can't see any big changes happening. It seems, it seems pretty happy right now. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it depends what kind of music people want to, want to make. I mean, I see a big, um, cut, I mean, we had like a long period where you could see grandparents, parents, and and grandchilds in a in, at a Bob Dylan or Rolling Stones concert. And now I can see that young people listen to completely different things. And yeah, it depends what kind of involvement of the drums they need, whether they do everything electronic or whether they use still acoustic drums. But I can't can't really tell. But you're right. I mean, things with the drums had stayed for a very long period, very very similar. We were talking on the phone before. I mean, when you look at the at the bass drum, for example, um, you had a size of twenty eight, twenty six, twenty four inch, and fourteen deep, and this happened and stayed till. In the middle of the eighties, I mean, this is when they start extra deep drums, and they started to make twenty-two by sixteen, twenty-two by eighteen, and realized, oh, a twenty-two by eighteen drum sounds much bigger than a twenty twenty-two by fourteen. But the fourteen inch had to do with the the shoulder, the size of the shoulder of a marching person, and this is fourteen inch. This is for a normal man walking. And this is why when they put the bass drum on the floor, they could have used every size, but they stuck 100 years with 14-inch till they started, oh, moment, we could make it deeper. Yeah. Jeez, that's... What you just said sums it up all so so perfectly of like 100 years or so of that, of like, oh, wait, we could make it smaller. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh, whatever. Okay, we'll make it smaller now. That's so neat. Okay, man, this is awesome. I feel like this this episode is just full of a bunch of little tidbits of um of I mean, really for people 
not really only in America, but for in, in all the non, you know, European countries, it might be obvious for people in Germany and stuff, but what you're saying, a lot of this isn't very obvious to us um, and people in different, you know, all around the world. So this is really fascinating. Why don't we take a little bit at the end here and talk about um, your shop and everything? How long have you been an owner of a drum store? Oh, my own store gets 20, um, 20 years old next year, but I wow. was working in the business for like over 30 years. Um, I was working, I started in, at another shop and then I was working for the industry, worked for a couple of drum companies and did all sorts of different things, working in factories. And um, then like 20 years ago, I decided to uh, start my own drum shop here and mm. still very happy to do that. I mean, it's not easy in these days and a lot of things yeah. changed and um, yeah, manufacturing wise. And I mean, as you say before, I mean, when you had drum kits starting from the 60s on and every five years, there came a new model, but there was a big gap when you got the new model. There were so many different new things, and it was a real new drum set. But if a company now brings out a new drum set, it's just a different drum set. It has a new name. It has, has different finishes. But as you said before, it's basically the same drum set. Yeah. And I know um, I worked at Guitar Center uh in the drum department here, which I don't know if they, do they have guitar center in, in uh, Germany? No, no, we don't have guitar center, but you know what it is though. Obviously mega yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big box store, which a lot of people, they actually, I think they're just filed for bankruptcy. Um, but, mm. um, and I worked there, I was 16 or 17 and I worked there for probably six months. Um, kind of a summer job that went long, but I didn't sell a single drum set like at all. I didn't even, it didn't even come up. No one came in. I wasn't working there all the time. I was, you know, after school, but like it, it's just like, it was sticks and heads and stuff, but you know, so it's not like you said, like guitars, even guitars, you can buy a guitar for, you know, 300 bucks. That's decent, but a drum set, you're really dropping a lot of money. So it's sort of tough in that regard too. I'm sure of selling these expensive drum sets. I mean, you get a lot of budget drum sets, and I'm probably uh, making most of my money selling selling uh, beginner instruments because people, the parents, want to go into a shop and and get somebody who they trust. When the kids are 16, 17, I mean, they go on t on the internet, they go into um, blogs and chat with other people and get their ideas, and they say, "Oh, it's." The easiest way to get it over mail order, just get it from the internet and buy this and that. So I don't get these people normally uh, yeah. because they just order whatever and where it's cheapest. And then I have a lot of customers who's, who are with me since 30 years and who also always buy from my shop. And if they want to buy an electronic drum kit, they say, hey, can you get me one? And they don't ask for the price. They just know that I make a good price. And um, yeah, this is how, how I make the money. These days, um, we sell, obviously, a lot of electronic drum kits. Um, a lot yeah. of drum teachers didn't accept them um, many years ago or some years ago. They didn't accept electronic drum kits, that, but they got much better. And since you have these mesh drum kits, mesh head drum kits, uh, electronic drum kits, um, yeah, that they work quite fine for a lot of young kids who work, uh, who who live in in houses where they can't use a acoustic drum kit. So this yeah, is part really. of the business. While I'm still very much into acoustic drums, and I prefer them a lot more. But my on my own, I practice on a on an electronic drum kit as well. I'm right there with you. I'm like in my house. Cause like when I play on the drum set I have here and then I have like a music space where I have a kit, but like I want to get an electric kit. Cause it's like, I have to play, especially having like a baby who's running around. Like I have to play very lightly when I'm using like brushes and I'm not really a jazz brush guy. I love it, but I'm just, it's not how I was trained, but like I'm doing it just to be quiet. And I'm like, okay, I need to get like an electric kit, put it on like the third floor of my house and just go, like 
play for real. I mean, there, there's such a difference of like playing real acoustic drums, knowing that you're being too loud. You, you can't, I mean, for me, I just mentally, physically, I'm holding back. So, um, I need to buy an electric drum set, but they're an investment, man. I mean, they are expensive for real, for guys like us who really want a real one, Mm. like a pro one, they're pricey. So, um, I don't think that's right or wrong. I think as a guitar player, you have a, a classical guitar to play Beethoven and you have a, a Western guitar to play at the campsite fire and yeah. you have an electric guitar to play on a rock and roll stage. And it's the same with the drums. If you want to be a real drummer at one stage in your life, you want to, you going to have a electronic drum kit to practice. And it's much easier to practice when you can put your music on, just put a stick into the drum set or even with Bluetooth and you play to the music. Sure. And, Live, I don't see the electronic drums yet. I mean, I don't. I will not say I never see them, but but um, I think it's a long way till you really have a electronic drum kit on a stage playing jazz music or rock music. I mean, yeah, me personally, when I go into a club and there's a band and the drummer is playing rock or blues music on a on an electronic drum kit, I. I leave because I I don't think that it works. Yeah. But we see how it goes. I mean, they put a lot of money and effort into developing electronic drum kits, and maybe one day we're going to see something that is similar. But still, I think acoustic drum kits, I love the smell. I love the, to see how the wood is... is um, worked on i i i just love the the feel of the drum i love the yeah everything about it and i totally agree and so, and i should say the person at home is who's sitting there listening to this who's who's playing gigs with an electric kit do whatever works for you obviously and everyone has their own and fritz isn't right or wrong i mean you see that all the time where people use and i've worked in a lot of studio sessions where sometimes a guy will bring in an electric kit and it's like that's great. There's, we can just use MIDI and run it in and, and it's, it makes it easy, but it has a different feel. So, but I think if you're playing drums, that's the key thing, whatever you do. Um, and you know, we all have <laughs> whatever we, whatever gets you playing, um, is important. So cool. Well, Fritz, man, I can't tell you how awesome it has been to just hear the different, um, stories and, you know, the, 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 German and European side of these uh, things. And then we kind of branched off and, and learned a lot of different things today. So um, where can people find you? Like, why don't you tell any German listeners who might be, you know, within driving distance um, where they can find about out about Drumhouse and all that stuff? Oh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a local drum shop. I mean, I'm not interested in doing business over, over mail order and things. I mean, I, really want to talk to the people but if somebody is in freiburg or the black forest area they will find me in the middle of freiburg just in the, in the center of the town it's a small shop but it's full of drums like the drum shops i experienced in my childhood when i went to forbes music in in london where you have a small room and you have drums everywhere till the roof and yeah. um yeah, we have a lot of stuff, and we are located in the center of Freiburg. And if somebody cool. of the listener wouldn't want to see and have a cup of coffee and a, a chat about drums, then you're always welcome. Man, if someone out there is in the Black Forest listening to this, you need to go and just tell Fritz that you heard this episode, <laughs> just so I can, and then he'll tell me, or someone needs to tell me that that I reached one person out there and that actually worked because that would be too cool that's pretty specific uh (laughs) of a location to find someone but um that would be awesome so cool well fritz um thanks again for for doing this and being so flexible and uh i don't think i mentioned it earlier i had to postpone an hour i have a sick baby who i think is doing much better but uh, i was cleaning throw up off of a bunch of toys this morning from a, a baby um so he's doing okay but uh yeah thanks again for being so flexible and sharing all of your amazing knowledge with us and uh being on the show yeah thank you it was very very pleasure for me 
to do that. And I'm always interested to talk to drummers and um, people from the industry. And I think what you do is a great, great thing. And it brings drummers from everywhere of the world together. Thank awesome. you for doing something like that. My pleasure. And again, a thank you to Norbert from um, Meinl, who has just, again, become a very... Uh, it, the show is just so I, I try to keep it very pure and educational and just like straightforward history. And I think a lot of people like Norbert um, appreciate that and then suggest people like yourself. So thank you to, uh, to Norbert and uh, and obviously thank you, Fritz. We'll talk to you later. OK, thank you. Bye bye. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate and leave a review and let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. This is a Gwyn Sound Podcast.